Welcome and thank you for listening to the Green Majority Podcast. We'll be get started with our show in just a moment. I just want to take a moment to uh, remind folks, if you appreciate what we do, if you like our show, you can actually directly support us. Uh, we do have a tip system. If you're uh, financially restrained, we do understand, uh, as are we. Uh, you can uh, be a member for as little as a dollar a month. If you're not feeling uh, financially restrained right now, you can uh, become a member for the suggested donation of 5 or $10 per month. And this, of course, can be changed at any time. So if you want to upgrade or downgrade later, you can always do that. You can do that through through Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Green Majority, or just go to greenmajority.ca. Enjoy the show. You're listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM. Uh, I'm your host, Sarah Kester, and uh, Stefan Hostetter is here in the studio with me uh, again. And uh, we actually have a uh, – we managed in the last three, three minutes to pull together a rather thematic show. So uh, this is going to be good, I think. Yeah. I'm, ex- I'm excited. It's, it's, it's going gonna, it's gonna, to – it's smooth sailing from here on out. Yeah, we didn't choose just for the sake, just for the record. We didn't choose the stories in the last three no. minutes. We just turned it into a into we, a story. We ordered them. That's right. Yes, <laughs> very exciting. It's very exciting to be in the last few minutes. <laughs> Uh, so, Stefan, uh, you're going to lead us off here, but we're actually not doing our usual sort of you go first, I go mm. a second break here today. We're going to hop around. So I'm not going to preview all the stories too much, but I want to sort of just outline that we're looking at a lot of resource stuff today, not just pipelines, but a lot of pipelines uh, and resources and how that bridges to uh, Canadian politics. Now, you might say, I hear you saying already, Saren, is that not every show? <laughs> uh, but. There, there's a little bit of a different angle here. I think I think we're leaning towards legitimately trending positive here. I don't know. We'll see where we feel at the end of the show. Uh, but I think I feel like I feel like we have a general positive trend here to the show. That's all the teasing I'm going to do. And before I throw it to Stefan, yeah, thank you. Uh, so there is a bunch of news. There's a bunch of pipeline news. Uh, you know, we often joke that we could make the whole show about pipelines, uh, and occasionally we do. But this show only begins with pipelines, and then sort of moves off it briefly, and then mm. and then sort of comes back to it at the end. Yeah. Um, but uh, but it's uh, it's bad news for pipelines. Good news if you're against them uh, today, which is a combination of one story from the Wall Street Journal uh, and then breaking news, uh, or at least it broke over overnight almost. I believe mm. it was uh, you know the the, it, the, the rumblings began uh, late la- late last evening, and then the second piece of the confirmation came today. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, what I'm teasing here is the is the is the new British Columbia Premier. Uh, they had the BC Liberals. Uh, we've sort of covered some of the confusion around this, and to be honest, there's still actually a bunch of uh, of things up in the air. Uh, the and I'll get to that in half a second. Uh, but the the good news is that the that Christy Clark's government has been defeated by a vote of confidence, uh, lost a vote of confidence, forty two to forty four uh, yesterday evening, and and today uh, it was revealed uh, or announced that the uh, Lieutenant Governor uh, Judith Gouchon. Or Guchin, I hope it's Guchon. Sounds more interesting. Um, officially asked uh, BC lead, NDP leader John Horgan uh, to form a minor, minority government, uh, and of course this was actually a question uh, that was if it was going to happen or not. Uh, they could have just called another election, um, which 
would not, which have been would have been very expensive, uh, and it, it would have been. An, and I want to just interject that there's possible because it seemed like what we were reading, at least, that it seemed like it was leaning towards that's probably what was going to happen. And uh, and I wonder. I just want to pause it here that I wonder if what happened to uh, uh, the uh, EU, uh, sorry, the uh, uh, the UK's uh, prime minister. Uh, or I'm getting my terms mixed up. You know, the, the May I think is Elizabeth the name? May, yeah, uh, not Elizabeth May, no, uh, but uh, sorry, May. the, the yes. leader of the leader of the UK, uh, you know, recently did to try to shore up uh, the support before uh, doing all the Brexit stuff, and then just got annihilated. So it's perhaps that that may have given Christy Clark pause, seeing as there's a similar, similarly activated sort of resistance here in Canada as well. Well, but she didn't actually get to decide this. She actually wanted it, right? She Christy Clark was pretty com- pretty much. Pushing for the fact that there should be a new election, um, and and then was rebuffed by the lieutenant governor. I think actually a closer example may be the the time in which uh, w- in which when Harper uh, called out, tried to prorogue Parliament as a way to avoid uh, losing a vote of confidence to to the coalition, um, and and it was allowed to do that. Uh, and so it is nice to see that you know that perhaps we're moving a little bit in a better direction in which uh, lieutenant governors. Uh, you know, at least allow other people try to form governments rather than sort of allowing the governments that are currently in control to run a little more amok. Um, and so it's certainly not over. And so what happens now, just so everyone understands, that the BC uh, NDP and the BC Greens will form a coalition. They will have uh, 44 of the 40, uh, 44 seats to the 43 seats the BC Liberals will have. And but and one of the two, th- one of the many things, uh, or I think there's about 20-ish things that uh, that the NDP and the Greens uh, Agree upon to the extent in which they're sort of using this as uh, some sense their platform. They're sort of they're what they each agree on. They had a um, is the rejection or at least the the attempted rejection. Well, we'll this will be interesting. It sort of becomes a battle of province versus federal to some extent now um, of the northern uh, northern gateway pipeline. That was a combination of no, sorry, Kinder Morton. Um, there's there's so many pipelines. The Kinder Morgan pipeline um, and the the NDP and the and the Greens both came out against it. And so this adds another limp, another wrinkle to this ongoing fight against against Kinder Morgan. You know, it was one of those things where after Trudeau uh, approved it, um, it was seemed as if this battle was once again lost. And this battle has felt lost so many times, I feel. Uh, and yet the, the, you know, the grassroots activists keep coming back and keep and keep pushing on this fight. And they keep finding ways to, to win uh, or at the very least to, to delay um, and and the second story sort of shows why this delay is important. So I think to, to wrap up this this little piece, the the question now becomes: uh, with forty four seats in the House, um, the the one one of the BC NDP or Greens will have to become the Speaker of the House, and technically they don't actually vote, or they don't vote unless there's a tie. And then of course we'll leave the vote to be tied forty three forty three every time, and therefore without some sort of defection on the Liberals' uh, side to, or, or or an abstin abstination uh, of voting. The speaker will be forced to vote every time, and convention ha- is is up in the air. I've seen multiple takes on what convention in here pl- uh, implies. Whether it's always voting with the government, or whether it is uh, all the way to basically voting to keep the conversation going, which I put in air quotes because what the definition of what that means is sort of up in the air. Yes, people can't see your hands, Stephanie. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> magic of radio can't see my hands. Um, <laughs> But the but so that's the so that's the, the 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 idea is that the speaker of the house always has to keep the conversation going. That's the concept. Uh, and now, but what that actually means in in practice is 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 seems to be at least uh, at at issue. And so 
that's the thing to look for out here is that if it, what's most likely going to happen is that the Greens and, and NDP will decide that the Speaker of the, ha- Speaker of the House should just actually vote in a, in a relatively partisan way, you know, vote with the government uh, or with the coalition to, to keep the House afloat because it will keep – if they – if they keep going, at, nothing can get passed without without uh, without that forty fourth vote, and so that's likely what's going to happen. Uh, but again, they could, if not, they're really then they're looking at it. Then you're actually looking at an election. If you know, if you can, if you don't do that, so we shall see. the the uh, The next step is that's the next step is that there's going to be a, another vote, and we'll see where where that one goes. Uh, but at least it puts uh, Kinder Morgan back on notice, uh, and and it would make investors once again a little more concerned about about this, um, and why that matters, and why any sort of delay matters. Uh, comes from the Wall Street Journal, and a new article titled "A New Problem for Keystone XL: Oil Companies Don't Want It." Uh, it's the Wall Street Journal, uh, like you know, just just letting us know that oil companies don't actually want Keystone XL. Yeah. So when they're, but also from that particular publication, the the phrasing there is not like sort of with a wink and a nod. They're actually like they're on it. They're generally speaking on the industry side in here. So that's more like a, the title. The title should be read with an understanding of of lamenting this fact, not uh, not supporting it. Yeah, or or, or, really, or or just you know, or just at least reporting just exactly that that this is what the problems they're having, right? There, it's not one. It, it is not at least should not be taken as a as a hopeful, I guess, uh, mm. point. Uh, whether or not it is uh, sad or just just informing you of inf- important information, uh, you can leave up to. You can ask Christopher M. Matthews and Bradley Olson, who wrote this article. Um, but uh, but what's interesting here? So what this really highlights is the is that despite the fact that it was you know it was got the green light from President Trump, um, the pipeline's operator Trans Canada uh, is currently struggling actually to line up customers uh, to ship crude because the way this works is that to build these pipelines is they have to get they try to get longer term commitments uh, for for oil. You know, you, you, just, you need to basically sign up to want X amount shipped for for a certain amount of time, and and they are in there and there's they're having some trouble finding some people in part because when they applied for this, it was ten years ago, um, and the world was quite different ten years ago. Uh, you know, back then the price of oil was one hundred and thirty dollars a barrel, uh, and so really and so and so all oil was was productive uh, and was and was uh, at least profitable. Uh, it's now down to about forty-five dollars a, a barrel. So again, you're really at this point you're you're relying on the idea that it will go back up at some point, uh, and yet there's a there's a definite question. You know, we reported a couple weeks uh, a week or two ago about how um, Exxon shareholders were sort of came out and were like, "You got we don't believe your numbers of how much people will be actually pumping oil in the next in in in, in the future. You have to like." Tell, explain to us how you see that happening. Yeah, and, and they're shareholders too, right? So just to, yeah. like to recap, these are not people who are like trying to f- pick holes to bring Exxon down. They they have a literal vested interest. Yeah, they have in Exxon doing their well. money. They just, they, they just think that like, hey, you're lying to us about our investment here. That's that's really all that is. Yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. It's literally it's it's their money to try that that they're looking that they're looking out for, and that's the that's the problem that's currently being caused. Um, and so what's interesting here is that there's a quote from. Uh, part of the uh, part of the one of the people who works actually for uh, TransCanada um, explaining that sort of a lot of the water has gone under the bridge over the last seven or eight years since we proposed the project with respect to where energy prices are today. Is uh, talking to investors in May, uh, and it sort of complicates the, pro- the complicates the negotiation, um, to which is a very funny way of saying. Uh, when it was way more profitable, this was way easier, and now people don't actually want this pipeline. And and again, this is this is the delaying fact of of, of this of being pushed back and pushed back is causing this issue around, 
you know, how much how much more oil will we need? That's the, the question that really keeps coming back to this is, is this question of will we actually need these pipelines? And the fight that keeps this keep, keep being heard from from you know from this show or in activists all across the world is that we cannot afford to use these pipelines. And now it sounds like they can't afford to build these pipelines. Mm. Uh, and this is why delaying matters because we're getting closer and closer to this point in which these these oil companies are going to have to admit that they can't actually build these things. Mm-hmm. Um, and so and so when you look at this, you know, you look at you know, look at production that's being grown, uh, growing in other places, it's still a still a difficult. And well, as we'll cover at the end of the show, uh, the the oil sands themselves specifically are are now facing, you know, are now seeing being seen as a, as another potential regulatory uh, f- uh, threat from the from the Trudeau government. You know, everyone's you know Harper was sort of build build build, and Trudeau at least is is is, is making some conversation. And also, uh, as it's not he's late, whispering, he's build, whispering, he's whispering. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, but uh, but at least it's causing businesses some 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 pause. Mm. And, and so what they're doing, which is as a quick aside before I pass over to you for our third story on this topic, is that. This is that a lot, some shippers are actually choosing to use rail rather than uh, rather than um, uh, these pipelines because of the fact that they can they don't have to buy into as long a period of time. So they well, they don't have to build the rail in some cases. Right? Well, no, sure, yeah, so, but it's yeah. still way more expensive. Like it's it's right. literally like it's you know, it's eight fifty a barrel apparently to move uh, to move uh, oil from Alberta to Texas by rail, and it's and that's and they, this one has two to eight dollars a barrel or more than pipeline tolls. That means you're basically paying almost what that's a that's if it's eight dollars that's a you're paying eight fifty instead of fifty cents per barrel. Well, uh, and, and it's just to avoid this, this, this potential of having to lock yourself in. Well, and he, here's how the math on that works. Here's a really simple way to think about it. It's technically on a per diem basis, buying a car for $50,000 over the lifespan of that car is cheaper per day than renting that same exact car for three days. But if you only, if you're pretty sure that maybe you might need it for a week, you might need it for a year. But you're definitely you, your certainty of needing it for the full lifespan means that that calculation of what it's worth per day to buy the car now becomes irrelevant. And if you're if you're not sure that you might not even need it for a few weeks, much less ten years, then the astronomically higher cost of renting that vehicle now becomes your only option, really, to be uh, responsible. So that's sort of where these that's why they're suddenly were you know willing to pay much higher prices is because on the long term, if you're really unsure. It's the better way to go. And I think, and that's another indication to take from that as well, is that they really are starting to get nervous. Well, you know? well and, and, you're, and, you're seeing, and you're seeing this sort of pushback and this, this concern uh, or this difficulty for pipelines all over the place. You know, even, even we reported uh, a, a while ago um, about how one of the reasons why uh, the CODIS Access Pipeline uh, t- delay was so important was that they would have to then renegotiate some new contracts for, to get oil out of, the, out, of, out of that. And so, so all of these things are just looking like worse and worse investments, and that's sort of what we're what we're seeing here. And, and it goes, it's to the point in which there's a great here. I'll, I'll end on this one quote from uh, from Rob Thum, Thummel, uh, who's a portfolio manager for Tortoise Capital Advisors, which manages about sixteen billion dollars and is a major investor in the Trans Canada. And their quote uh, is talking about how. It's it's clear what what the actual investing market is looking at, and they don't seem to care. They they, they well they don't actually as you hear in the quote. Uh, Transcan the Transcan pipeline is not what they're interested in. Um, the quote specifically is uh, we don't own Trans Canada because of Keystone. 
We own it because of the potential for expansion of natural gas infrastructure in the Northeast. And so this is a company whose investors have already shifted priorities. Uh, it's a thing they can't really sell. Um, and yet they're, and they're still trying to drag it along. And this is all because there was, they've managed to delay it for the entire, you know, pe- the people on the ground, the amount of movement that was, that has been generated in Nebraska and everything else to fight this thing. And they still hasn't got approval in Nebraska. So there's still one, there's still multiple fights left on this thing. And so like this delay matters. Uh, in part because investors are these kind of investors and also the investors like like ING, which I'm going to throw to you and have a second, um, are taking notice. Yeah. So ING uh, Group, uh, a Dutch is a, a Dutch lender, uh, said that they will not finance any of Canada's major pipeline projects, including uh, TransCanada Keystone XL, as well as Energy East uh, and Bridges Energy East Pipeline uh, Line 3, as well, specifically citing pressure from activists. Uh, this comes after uh, a month ago uh, disavowing Kinder Morgan. Uh, Trans Mountain Pipeline Expansion Project, and uh, but at the time did not name any other Canadian uh, projects. Uh, ING has a policy of not financing extraction of oil sands globally, uh, but it was a little bit unclear where it came down on pipelines, and I think this is really what opened up, uh, may created an opening for activists to uh, further push uh, this point uh, by specifically reaching out to the bank and pressuring the bank to pull from this. Uh, quote, uh, from the uh, from a statement on the bank's website says quote proceeding uh, uh, processing oil sands is known to be energy intensive producing significant greenhouse gas emissions this is in addition to potential social impacts such as local native tribes historically using the land uh, was what they referenced uh, as to their decision now there's a few angles to this that I think are worth uh, chewing on for just a moment here we have three so that makes good time for that uh, that um, uh, so this is a pension fund. Uh, is uh, one of the interesting uh, angles and uh, uh, sorry uh, that the came after a, a Sweden's largest national pension fund which is the AP7 uh, sold investments in six companies uh, in uh, earlier in the month uh, they, on the basis that they violate the Paris climate agreement one of those companies was TransCanada and this was uh, uh, believed to have partially uh, perhaps inspired uh, ING to take this move as well and uh, and it's specifically in several cases, both the uh, AP7 fund and ING, uh, specifically, again, fighting uh, fierce opposition, particularly from Aboriginal communities, particularly from environmental groups uh, who have put that up. So that's sort of interesting point worth noting and possibly discussing. A is um, pressure is increasingly effective uh, because now, as, as Stefan just finished outlining for, for about 15 minutes there, um, this is now, and, and actually, I think it's worth noting that in the past, I've said that you know, I don't. I have questionable belief in in the usefulness of specifically protesting. I wasn't saying like I think you know contacting politicians and emailing your bank and all that stuff super useful. Not super. I've I've been on the fence, and I think it's a case by case basis with physical protesting in the age of digital media. Uh, but just because it has a reduced impact. Uh, however, now is the time when this does make sense because as we've been discussing, many of these companies and many of the people financing these companies who are doing this work. Uh, are starting to get pushed towards the edge of a cliff, which is comes like, okay, if we don't do something with this soon, like the economics alone makes this a non-option. So all this pressure is working, all this activism is absolutely working. But here's a a really interesting other part of the uh, story that I think is worth noting. Uh, Weeks uh, after um, 
uh, pressuring ING away from Trans Mountain, the original one, so the, the older uh, item that happened. Weeks later, Kinder Morgan, uh, which owned a majority share in, in uh, the Kinder Morgan pipeline, obviously, which is an American uh, co- company that's sort of based uh, with a base in Canada, uh, was able to raise $5.5 billion, uh, in credit from other lenders. So they, they made up uh, – the timeline here is difficult to pin down, and, and not all the numbers are mentioned. So I don't know if this completely exceeded or not quite as much the amount of money that was lost from investors pulling out. But here's the data point that's super interesting. Who made it up? The four largest lenders are Canada's biggest banks. So two other points here. While we're talking about activism being useful, how about we all talk to our banks? I am so thrilled that Stefan told me before the show that Tim is coming back on. Tim Nash, who I'm sure is going to listen to this episode and is going to be very excited that I want him to talk about that topic again, because now is we're getting into an extremely effective, useful time to be doing that sort of thing. So Tim will come on and talk to us more about that. Uh, we talked to him a while ago about breaking up with your with your main, uh, you know, mainstream bank um, and, and other things like that. The other angle I want to be is that this is so... Uh, investment firms that don't aren't based in Canada, but saw Canadian energy projects as a good investment, are now pulling out. Canadian businesses, and in this case, Canadian banks or Canadian people with money, but Canadian investors, I should have said, uh, particularly banks, are now replacing some of that capital. So what does that do? That increasingly concentrates the risk in Canada. So if and when we have our crash, which we will, it's just a matter of when. Now, increasingly amounts of the capital that's going to crash are now Canadian-owned assets and Canadian-owned investment, which now increases the national risk. So it is now becoming even more perilous. So as we, as we celebrate uh, the, the fall of some of these pipeline companies, and I should add that it's not simply a matter of those companies are evil, but a matter of the fact that we can't have those projects and that hopefully, hopefully, this money will then be put into maybe even buy this Kinder Morgan Solar Farms or whatever. Uh, it's about transferring this money to projects that are needed, not just about we hate this company. Um, is that now this risk is going to be concentrated in Canada? So even if this does happen and we win, if all the risk is centered in Canada, well then the then the doomsday scenario that that uh, some people uh, like to sort of scaremonger about could actually it could actually collapse the Canadian economy. Now I'm I'm going to go on record here again and saying I'm not an economist, <laughs> but I just like these are the types of things that I worry about. Right? Where yes, we need to divest, but we, if if it's just everybody else other than Canadian institutions that are divesting and we absorb all of that divestment in Canada, well then we're just even more at risk than we already were. Um, and and you know see the financial collapse of a few years ago to find out what happens when a bunch of major banks. Uh, get in trouble. Uh, so I'm both excited, but that's my cautionary note for the end of section one. Let's take it there and go to Megan, who is going to tell us what our first music break. We are back. You're listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM on one of our wonderful and very appreciated, I might add, uh, community radio partners across the country, now internationally as well. Uh, shout out to our uh, American listeners as well, of now of which there are a great many of you. Welcome to our American listeners as well. Um, uh, I also, I wonder if, if the part of the reason why we're getting more and more American listeners is because we don't actually talk about Trump that much. <laughs> it occurred to me this morning. Um, so we're going to keep that up uh, because, you know, we don't need to talk about him if he doesn't... Uh, maybe if we pretend he doesn't exist, he'll go away. Uh, so... Uh, <laughs> Right. So what we're going to do is uh, we got we have a few more energy related projects here, uh, related project related story, pro- energy project related stories. Um, 
but we're going to sort of start veering towards uh, a different kind of good news. So not just cheering the downfall of projects we don't think should be built, uh, but this is going to be part of our transition now towards uh, actually positive stuff. Uh, so uh, it's, it was recently announced uh, as of Wednesday, it's being reported here from a story from uh, the Smog blog written by uh, Sharon Kelly uh, that uh, Southern uh, that there's the, Clem- the Kemper Clean Coal Project, which is done by Southern Co. I, that sounds like a very silly company name but sure uh is a parent company for mississippi power uh and filed uh with the securities and exchange commission today that it's uh that it's essentially giving up on its uh clean coal power plant and of course thank you very much for to d smog blog for putting absolutely 100 percent of uh, phrases clean coal in quotes Mm -hmm. as it should be uh so there's a number of really interesting things here. So let's just talk about what the project wanted to do. So it essentially was turning uh, a very, very low grade, very common, very, very cheap, uh, the cheaper end of even coal uh, through uh, what's referred to as a gasifier so it, or a liquefier. So it essentially just it, it turns solid fuel into liquid fuel uh, is the sort of simplest way to think about that. Uh, it had been building this uh, project for quite some time uh but uh on the 28th of this month 2017 june uh it announced that it would be suspending operations and uh, uh and startup activities around the gasifier portion of the kepler icgg uh, igcc plant uh it also further warned and part of the reason why it had to file a uh, securities and exchange commission uh, report uh, specifically was that it's uh, going to record or it may record it says uh, up to a 3.4 billion dollar loss for the project in the second quarter of 2017 uh, the reason it's a maybe is really really infuriating uh, and uh, all power and support to the folks in uh, mississippi uh, because what they're going to be doing now is uh, essentially going to court, or rather, the they've they've basically said that they're going to push this three point four billion dollar loss onto consumers. So the project itself took about seven point five billion dollars uh, in construction and engineering uh, expenses uh, 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 relative to a. a comparable natural gas plant which essentially is what the clean quote-unquote clean coal is trying to emulate is it it's the coal isn't clean in the best case scenario in the optimal case scenario if you take the best uh claims of the people claiming this technology can be done which should be taken with a grain of salt already all it's doing is taking it from as dirty as the coal that it is to as dirty as natural gas so that's yes that's an improvement they can't do that (laughs) and that's certainly not clean because natural gas isn't clean uh but it would be it would have been better than burning the coal in another way. So there were some people thinking that that you know pursuing this because it it sounded like it could be not as bad. Maybe you could sneak it past some people uh, that are concerned about climate change but not super informed. But now we don't have to worry about it. Oh, oh sorry. So the the comparable uh, plant would only cost seven hundred million dollars. So compared to seven point five billion, uh, much much more expensive. They're now throwing in the towel. So the, what they're trying to do is recover the cost from power customers. So they're essentially going to throw this onto the local populace's bills. Uh, the state regulators, uh, regulators have said, absolutely not. Uh, they've upped their uh, annual legal budget from $200,000 to $2.5 million and just to hired two law firms uh, with specific experience in utilities law. So they are absolutely not playing around. They are not having any of this uh, that the uh, power companies uh, experiment. Uh, it, it will not be paid for by the local populace. Uh, but so there's a there are few takeaway here. There's a few more details I might sprinkle in here. But I, I think this is where we can start discussing Stefan because there's sort of two 
big takeaways here, aside from the fact that uh, people saying they're investing money in projects doesn't mean that they're going to be able to do it. Uh, you would think, no, well, if they're investing billions of dollars, they're going to be pretty sure. Well, maybe not. Read this. <laughs> um, things change. Uh, people also, uh, because they really, really wanted it to work, they invest in something, which is something that, you know, that we have to be concerned about on the sort of clean side too. We don't, we shouldn't be dumping billions of dollars into super experimental projects that we aren't sure of just because we want them to work. Uh, I think that just generally applies to technology, but the, um, that's one of the takeaways here is it didn't work. The other takeaway is that this is also part of our ongoing story about how, uh, large corporations do things that are for their advantage, not anybody else's. And then if it doesn't work out, maybe it's this, maybe it's a project that doesn't work out. Maybe it's, uh, you know, at t- big, taking a bunch of gambles with their business model and then asking for a bailout for the government. Maybe it's, uh, you know, not maintaining their uh, pipeline equipment or not building proper safety things and dumping that cost of cleanup or, or repair onto the population. This is just standard operating procedure for large corporations um, and informs my uh, resentment towards many of them. Um, But so I think, but so there's sort of a win here. There's a cautionary tale. And I think there's sort of a win here um, just because this will also, uh, beyond the fact that Mississippi now doesn't have this, this would have been uh, America's first and was quite a bit being talked up as something, hey, look what we're doing. So this is going down not just as a failure, but it's going down as a very, very visible and I think impactful failure with all the other news. I think anyone else that was thinking about doing these sorts of projects that hasn't already sort of gone too far to quit uh, is going to be thinking very, very hard about how much money they're willing to lose if it goes wrong. Um, And of course, the other angle being that, hooray, clean coal doesn't work, even if you pump three quarters of uh, $10 billion into it. Well, it's one of those things in which it's, it, it feels to me, it's always sort of felt to me, I understand the concept of trying, uh, you know, of wanting to save a, uh, of a failing technology. I feel like you see that everywhere. Um, and I understand that in such a, ri- or industry that used to be so rich, you could, you could find ways to try to make this make sense, especially given the amount of ability to attach so much sentimentality to the sort of coal mining position, given the fact, even though it's, you know, an awful, like, please, let's give these people some better jobs. Um, but, uh, it's also this piece in which it's sort of like adding, a, you know, it's like to me, clean coal has always felt like adding a gas, like a gas powered motor to the back of a horse, uh, you know, just because you just you're just really concerned about the the, the you know the, the 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 people who make the horses on shoes, and so you're like, well, I know that I know that there's this car thing you're talking, this automobile you're referring to, but could we take the combustion engine part, so the speed, which is what you really really want, uh, and just attach it to the horse, right, and, and then and then have that work. Um, bionic horse legs yeah and it's just like it's it's, it's very you know it's like well while technology can be iterative um there's also a percentage of this in which we make leaps mm. and and this one seems like a leap we need to make uh specifically in part due to the fact that you know that clean coal is um is is still a is still you know even at its cleanest is still not a not not co2 uh neutral you know, yeah. it's not carbon neutral. It's not. It's not. It's. It's not a renewable resource. It's. It's still. It's still. All the other things about it are still problems. It's just slightly cleaner. Yeah, and I think, and, and like, I mean, here's something to think about because, like, yes, as I said, you know, the the natural gas is significantly cleaner than the other way to have burned this coal. Say this technology had worked. So, if every if 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 
natural gas uh, on average was the worst co2 emissions that like if all power essentially generation in north america moved up because much of it is below that line to where natural gas is would that be an improvement so say this this technology flourished and it became ubiquitous uh would that be an improvement well actually it probably would it probably would um but would it solve the problem? No. And would it cost a lot of money? Yes, mm-hmm. it would. So if you're not solving the problem, like that's that's the thing. That's where that's where investors need to be here from a financial point of view is 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 how big an opportunity is this even if this technology works? And the reality is that the only way that anyone would have invested in this project is that if they didn't think that there would ever be climate regulation. They they're building this because they have to, they're bowing to public pressure, not because it's an it's a solution to climate change, right? It's an optics win. Mm-hmm. And so really the only people that were investing in this were people that were thinking that never mind their opinion on climate change. These were people that were thinking that this would help prevent or would at least never have to come across any serious climate uh, legislation because you could have preempted climate legislation by saying, Hey, all our power is clean coal. Right? So I just think like uh, for anyone there thinking about investing in things who's maybe on the fence about that sort of thing, well, maybe if this technology takes off, no, no, it won't because eventually there's going to be either there isn't climate regulation and we're all in a lot of trouble and your investment account isn't really going to matter much, <laughs> uh, or there is going to be climate regulation anyway. And this stuff is all going to be a giant waste of money. Well, and, and or forget even the idea of necessarily like we can, we can get like it's a while it's certain that you'll end up with some climate regulation um, or yeah, or, or Armageddon. Um, the, uh, the other option is still that even that the movement now is that the climate regulation is feeling like it's going to end up actually following investors rather than investors following climate regulation right. um, to the extent in which uh, the task force on climate related financial disclosures, the TCFD, uh, which is part of a G20 initiative led by the Bank of England, uh, Mark Carney, who has been uh, has been strong on on climate for quite some time, while still being the head of the Bank of England. Like again, this the is only like, head of a bank that's a household name. Yeah, um, and and then also the former mayor of New York City, Michael Bloomberg, um, have just come out with a with a report about how um, about how. Basically, what they're trying—they're trying to set up a way to deflate the carbon bubble, um, and it's quite interesting. And the idea here is that they're trying to find a way to have uh, businesses create a standardized ways for businesses to, to disclose their their climate uh, their their climate risk, basically. Um, and and so the quote here is that is from Michael Bloomberg. It's climate change presents global market markets with risks and opportunities that cannot be ignored, which is why the framework around climate related disclosures is so important. Um, and then he continues on with saying the task force brings that framework to the table, helping investors evaluate the potential risks and rewards of transition to lower carbon economy. And so this is really just taking into account um, ca- the climate change, the, the, the changing of our world, which is you know, widely accepted as scientific uh, scientific reality. And so. Um, and so this is this is the investors sort of being pushed forward, and it's you know this is not a small thing. More than a hundred businesses with over two trillion dollars of combined annual revenue have publicly committed to adopting these voluntary recommendations. This is a this is a actual pretty considerable step in the right direction from the investment community, and it should be it should be recognized here. And this was something that I think I think. I believe it was you know Tim that we spoke to on a while ago brought up about how the particular people who are really really you want to find one area of 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 the of of the business of business that really cares about climate change um, look to the insurers because <laughs> the insurance industry 
uh, is is very scared of climate change mm. because you know the, what if the, if if there's a general enjoyment of stability amongst all business professionals, um, insurance agencies make their money off it. You know, there's it, it's you know to the extent in which. Uh, there's, a, there's an insurer called uh, a person named uh, Christian Thimmen, uh, who's the head of the regulation sustainability at the insurer of AXA. I wonder if it's called AXA. I think it's probably AXA. Um, and who are also members of this uh, of this of this commission or this, of this task force? Um, they're talking about how the financial so the financial sector had a particular interest in taking up the recommendations specifically with insurance because. And quote, we, of course, have an intrinsic interest in the world fighting against climate change. We see the frequency and intensity of natural disasters linked to climate change are augmenting every year. And this is important, right? You can't set a amount of money uh, that you should be paying to make to ensure that you can both insure people and then make the money back and some sort of profit without understanding what's going on. And perhaps further, and maybe this is something that like it's one of those things where you need to realize how important insurance is to our entire way of life um, and, and add the, in that understanding to the conversation uh, that we're currently having about what happens if we don't keep it below two degrees. Um, as, a, as a quick data point on that, uh, to just emphasize your point, is that uh, the, the reason there's so few nuclear plants in the U.S. is because none of them can get it, could get insurance after Three Mile Island. Right, That's, yeah. Otherwise, there would probably be dozens more nuclear plants in the U.S. Yeah, so the, like if insurance companies re- start really like moving towards not 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 ensuring some things we are in some serious trouble because that is really how 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 many of our many things operate um and and so the point here is that he's got a quote again this is still uh the head of regulation sustainability at the insurer axa christian thinman thinman um is saying that quote we consider a world of plus two degrees may still be insurable but a world of plus four might not be and the point here is plus two degrees, as we've discussed many times on the show, is to all of our best guesses without uh, some sort of geoengineering or some uh, um, some other thing that we have not yet even considered uh, equivalent to some extent of plus four degrees. Because once you hit two degrees warming, uh, the ice caps uh, melt and you get – or no, not the ice caps, sorry. The, the permafrost in the north melts and releases enough methane to get us to four degrees. And so – when you say the world of plus two may still be, but the world of four may not be, that's more of a time frame than a than you know. It, it takes a while to heat up that much up. It's not like it's not going to happen at that point, right. uh, which underscores the importance of if you like insurance, which very few. It's not the sexiest of things, I will admit, uh, but plays such an important role. Um, if the insurance companies are really start really coming at this strongly, and you know, this is now two trillion dollars of combined revenue that are looking to disclose this information, um, and you add up all of these pieces that we're sort of going through. The, the, of the difficulties that pipelines are having, you know, the clean coal is having difficulty finding money. We, we need, someone needs to understand and accept, uh, and it, we're slowly seeing the world understand and accept that this is not going to be the future we live in now is, or the world we live in now is not going to be the future that we, we live in. And that, you know, fossil fuels are, are the, are, are, are a old technology that we will find ourselves past. Yeah. And so we're going to, we'll have to, we're at the end of the second section here. We'll, we'll start with the Saskatchewan story that I'm just teasing now uh, at the beginning of the next section, but just to, just to wrap that comment up, but you know, a lot of people think, and it, it is to a degree true that, you know, banks hold a, uh, a, a lion's share of the power 
uh, when it comes to a lot of these large scale projects because they're where a lot of the financing comes from. In in many cases, even if even if the companies involved are very very rich, uh, a lot of their capital is tied up in their existing uh, projects. So just because Exxon is you know valued at whatever trillion dollars uh, doesn't mean they have a trillion dollars in liquid capital, right? So they still often a lot of the stuff is ha- involves financing or loans of of, in, of whatever degree and and will go through banks. So uh, a lot of the so. That where this power transfers over to insurers in a world with a lot of risk in it is that banks will, in many cases, not give you a loan on simple on the basis as to like one of the requirements for the loan is that they can get their project insured. Right. And so at that point, then if they can't get insurance, well, then it doesn't matter what the, you know, the bank might think it's a great project, but the insurance company doesn't, and they won't insure it. And we're not going to fund a project that's not insured. So uh, we're, we're increasingly going in a world where a lot of this power is now just through the normal machinations of how uh, business operates uh, in a modern economy, that uh, insurance companies are increasingly powerful uh, as far as the control over a lot of these large projects. Uh, we'll have to break there and go to our second final music break. We'll be coming back to talk about some new environment regulations relations in Canada, as well as a small example from Saskatchewan of some good news that comes with a little bit of a snicker. All that and more coming up after our second and final music break here on The Green Majority on CIUT 89.5 FM. Stephen, what is our second and final music break going to be? And we are back. You're listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM. We're on the home stretch, Stephen. Almost there. All right. There's so many things, so many things to talk about. So many things. We could do a two-hour show, I promise. Uh, but I'd get tired, I think, eventually. <laughs> so Saskatchewan uh, has developed a negative reputation. You might have noticed uh, we were taking some... I think I, I, I think it was constructive criticism of Brad Wall over the last, last few I don't, I, I'm gonna say I'm going to say it's just criticism. It was, I'm not it, necessarily going to... I'm not going to give us the constructive uh, Several qualifier. times I phrased my comments as advice. <laughs> Uh, anyhow, I, 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 which is not to say, you know, personally, I, I don't know anything about personally about the man. I don't, uh, is nothing personal, but uh, politically toxic as far as mm-hmm. I'm concerned. So it was very much to many people surprised, uh, especially uh, after Brad Wall uh, was threatened to sue the premier, uh, or sorry, the premier of Saskatchewan, Brad Wall, threatened to sue the federal government over mandating climate, uh, climate pricing, that all of a sudden we have... Uh, the, the first deep, uh, geothermal, uh, uh, essentially utility. So it's not the first uh, geothermal installation in Canada. Of course, there are residential small units uh, elsewhere, but it's the first utility scale. It's still very, very, very small. Uh, it's only five megawatts, which represents approximately 0.1% of the province's current electricity capacity. So this is, this is not revolutionizing Saskatchewan's power supply. Uh, what it is, is, uh, well, it's doing two things. First of all, it is, um, it's a demonstration that this technology is viable, or at least it will be when it's completed, of which I have no doubt. And secondly, and this was not lost on the desmog uh, journalist who wrote this article, which would be James uh, Wilt, uh, as well, that this also could serve as a, a little bit of a uh, opportunity to sort of find some solutions for out of work oil workers, so specifically drillers. Uh, we've mentioned this on the show before. I think it's very exciting to see the province of Saskatchewan uh, granting this permit uh, uh, to go ahead because it, it means that even if they don't want to view it as, or discuss it rather, politically speaking, as any sort of admission that climate change is real, the fact is, regardless what you think about climate change and regardless what you think about carbon uh, pricing, they have out-of-work oil uh, workers, many of which have uh, experience with drilling and other uh, high-end uh, industrial scale 
you know, building and whatever construction and operation uh, technology, as a huge amount of which is transferable to uh, geothermal drilling. Um, so this is really an, um, it's a win-win for the people of Saskatchewan. It's an excellent opportunity to say, uh, see, I told you we love you oil workers. We just didn't like the company you were working for and preferred you had a different job that paid you just as much, uh, but just doing something else uh, to wholeheartedly uh, congratulate uh, Saskatchewan uh, Sask and the, the utility uh, uh, Sask Power. Thank you for doing this. Uh, because I think it's, it's, we'll start a very, uh, interesting conversation. And I think more so than just a demonstration of the geothermal p- power, it's also a demonstration of a way to give, uh, oil workers, uh, another form of employment, uh, something to retrain in that doesn't require them completely starting from scratch, uh, such that we can get this on, uh, on a much larger scale very quickly. Uh, cough, cough. Let's do this on the large scale. Trudeau, I hope you're listening. Stefan. Yeah. Um, well, so to, 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 uh, Transition to Tudro, I guess, to tradition. Um, no, no that's, I'm, not, I'm not sure if that one's going to work. Um, came so close. If you have a better transition Trudeau pun for me, please let me know. Um, the the Canadian federal government has come out uh, with some of these new proposed uh, uh, sweeping reforms, actually, is what they're being hailed as, uh, to the Harper era environmental laws. And so you may remember, uh, you know, hearing us on the show uh, many years ago, sort of explaining just how, uh, just just how much the uh, the destruction of of the or the gutting of the environmental laws that Harper managed to pull off was. Um, how far-reaching it was, really, um, and, and 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 interestingly far-reaching in, in odd little ways to some extent too. In which you know, at one point he removed the ability of federal government to uh, to regulate things that had fish in it, which is a funny, which is a weird but very important piece of Canadian environmental regulation. Just so something you know. something that our American audience may not understand the significance of. Yes, but uh, but depending on where they live. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, but no, but there's a there's for a very long time there was a one of the major things is that ju- the Canadians uh, Canadian federal government has jurisdiction over f- uh, for over fisheries, which meant that if you could prove that fish lived in the, any waters in the area, you would could force a federal uh, environmental review um, rather than just the review that would be in the provincial jurisdiction and Harper removed this. Uh, and this is one of the things that's coming back, basically, if we're accepting this. Uh, there's five guiding principles. It's a 24-page document. It is by no means the what will end up being legislation, uh, but it is definitely uh, it's this it's the beginning of of their work towards it. They're hoping to get something out by the end of 2017. Well, sir, just before you do that, this is I think the most important takeaway of this section, Stefan, is that as you're listening. Keep that in mind. This is a this is a collection of feedback they got. They published so essentially this is their product from their review that it will be used to inform legislation that is being worked on now, and they are actively looking for comment on it. So absolutely, mm-hmm. absolutely, every single listener right now should go out and and I urge you to read the entire document. Take some notes. Open up a little page on your thing. Take some notes if you have comments, and go ahead and send them. It doesn't have to be a master uh, trius, but the, these emails will be read. These contacts will be read, and this is a this is an opportunity for people to really not just say, "Oh, I like this" or "I don't like that," but to really like propose some ideas and say, "Hey, you've identified a problem I agree with, but I don't like your proposed solution. What about this?" Uh, now is the time, folks. If you if you were going to do it once a year. 
Same. which I think is is manageable for a lot of people with very busy schedules. And maybe you know a lot of our listeners of the show listen to the show because they don't because they don't have time to be otherwise involved. Uh, in many cases, this is the, this is your opportunity. I think this is valuable use of your time. So sorry, carry on. Yeah. Um. So these are the so there's five guiding principles they're trying to work on. Uh, the first is fair, predictable, and transparent environmental assessment and regulatory processes uh, that build on what works. Uh, the second is participation of indigenous peoples in all phases that advances the government's commitment to the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples and Reconciliation. Uh, part three is inclusive and meaningful public engagement, which sort of you referenced right there. Part four is timely evidence-based decisions reflecting the best available science and indigenous knowledge. And five is uh, one project, one assessment with the scale of assessment aligned with the scale of the potential impacts of the project. And so – those are the five places they're trying to move with this. Um, and, and what's interesting is that right now, um, the, 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 other, the other thing comes, coming out of this is that they likely will be keeping the, uh, the NEB in, uh, based out of Calgary. There was a consideration in which they wouldn't do that. They're keeping it in Calgary. Um, and, it's, and, then, and also that, that it's far from over. There's a bunch of different pieces here. And one interesting note, though, is that the oil and gas industry, uh, industry uh, seems to kind of like this, actually. They say a lot of alignment between the – what's a quote? Uh, between the liberal government's decision paper and industry concerns. Uh, and it seems like one of their main things is really is this move towards just one, um, one review. Simplifying the process, basically. Yeah. Which I think is – which I think uh, – uh, sort of we, we pre-talked about this. Uh, I think this is our first really interesting discussion point because my immediate knee-jerk reaction and I think a lot of probably our listeners' immediate knee-jerk reaction a lot of the time is sort of – it's my sort of like spit test, if you will, uh, is that if I'm reading an article that about the government doing something and the industry that it's doing it like for uh, or, or about that is, that is affected by it Regulating gives two it. thumbs, mm. uh, my immediate assumption is there has to be something wrong with this. And I think that that comes from experience, not cynicism. Uh, you know, many people are aware. I mention it occasionally. We've been doing the show for uh, – we're very nearly – the show is over 10 years old. I'm coming up on my 10th year. Uh, Stefan, you've been here over four. Yeah. Uh, and so we've been doing this a long time. And so it's, it's, it's not out of cynicism. It's out of experience that we have that reaction. That being said um, – we also discussed before the show, just sort of chatting around about what we were going to talk about, that I was saying that, on the other hand, when we're looking at all these stories about uh, the ING Bank and, and other investments pulling out and, and projects collapsing, it reminded me a little bit of um, the, the issue with coal that you mentioned quite often here in, Canada, in Ontario, rather, specifically, which was that before coal was phased out, the coal industry was begging to be regulated so that they could have a path line to stay alive, right? It's like, give us something to do so that we can stay alive because we know that the alternative is disappearing. And so it, I don't think I, I had that reaction, but I think I, I also have to check that reaction. We need to, we, uh, more needs to be known uh, as to why they're happy. This could simply be them accepting reality and begging to be regulated so that they have a path forward. Uh, or it could mean that there's some details here we haven't quite realized are insidious. Uh, the jury's out. I, I, I feel like I want to give them the benefit of the doubt on this one, but, well, but TBD. Yeah, well, I think the other piece here is to remember that in to some extent, the they still just want consistency, right? And, and so um, 
a a consistent single you know a, a way to to have a understand how you run consistently. That, that's the one thing that was weird about often conservative governments is that they'll end up slashing and burning weird parts of you know what they can get their hands on or weird parts of the or when you put when you put the head of a regulated agency as someone as as your, as your oil buddy rather than someone who actually knows how to do this correctly um, or you know the head of the EPA uh, Scott Pruitt uh, in the states you aren't getting someone who knows how to make these regulatory processes easy even for the people who are being regulated. And so you end up with these processes that are not necessarily even even enjoyed by the by the companies that are doing it. Sure, they end up creating a bunch of loopholes that they can sort of work around. But if you're a company that's trying to like just play within the rules, you just want rules to make sense. That's what you really want. And and that's not what this is. That's what this is looks like. It's at least moving towards. Yeah, and I think another really good example of that same sort of hesitation, uh, just to give another one here, is also this simplified review process. It it. If, if it's a simplifying it so that uh, what we're saying, and it does it, it does here as you read through the details, that a lot more things are going to qualify for, or rather just revert back to the way it was in many cases, uh, qualify for environmental reviews, that this project be simplified, uh, which um, I always sort of like my eye twitches when I hear that because usually simplification, uh, if you're talking about something that's complex, can often mean that you're oversimplifying is my concern uh, to the point that you're not looking at things that are important. Uh, my also my my sort of knee jerk uh, suspicion was that a simplified uh, single process uh, also means that uh, if it, now there's only one thing to manipulate or control or corrupt uh, to essentially have an all access pass. So that's the cynical uh, informed cynicism viewpoint. Uh, on the other hand, as Stefan said, there's a legitimate case just for it to be that, OK, even if you're going to say no, we just want to hear no faster so that we can stop investing preliminary money in this so we can move on. So I, I want to acknowledge that I that anyone else that's that's reading through this or hearing this who has that reaction, that your reaction is valid. Uh, and I and I think it's it, it does not speak to anything other than being informed. But let's hold for now because it's it's not clear this could actually be excellent uh let's let's uh, wait for judgment on this uh, as to whether or not it's it's sort of uh, good or bad from from a climate point of view yeah uh and i want to sort of pivot now uh to some to the last i'm going to steal about probably the last 5 minutes of the show so i'm going to i'm going to apologize in advance um to to number Two basically, and actually briefly number four. So number two, to reminder, was the participation of indigenous peoples in all phases that advances the government's commitment to the United Nations Declaration of Rights of Indigenous Peoples and Reconciliation. And then interestingly, number four says timely evidence-based decisions reflecting the best available science and indigenous knowledge. And that is that is that is a it is it would be. It would be often uh, a stop. They would often you think you would stop at. What's interesting about that is that they've actually included this commitment to indigenous peoples twice in their five guiding principles, which I think speaks in part to the the, the at least the attempt that this what what they're hoping this is at least what they're saying this will do. Um, and I think what's interesting about this coming out right now is it's at a moment in which the country's having this conversation surrounding, you know, the the difficulty of the of our colonial past with 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 Canada 150 happening this weekend, um, with the TP being erected um, at uh, on Parliament Hill uh, overnight. I think two nights ago, much to the chagrin of the police who tried to stop them, um, which has now been actually, as we are speaking, uh, was visited by Trudeau uh, today. Um, and so you're seeing this, inter- it's this conversation of which 
we have to understand, and we, I was hoping actually to play on the show uh, a clip or two clips actually from, from a CPAC interview, which we'll link to on our website. Um, unfortunately, CPAC, we don't have, apparently, CPAC apparently has t- copyright laws, which I was not aware of um, when I went out and, f- and, and, was, and was looking at these things. Um, but the, it's an it's a incredibly powerful uh, 55 minutes if you have the whole time. Um, but it's also just, if you want to understand where a lot of indigenous people still feel like they're coming from, uh, at least watch the first, you know, the the the, the first thirty five or before really reporters start asking questions. Actually, um, and you get you, you get a sense of the level of which this is a conversation that has to be had, and a conversation in which the Trudeau government can say these things uh, in their in you know in their policy papers and can say these things outside of it, um, but until it is felt by the people who are living it, um, there's much much more work to be done. Um, and to the and which is which is incredibly important and I think the um, uh, I'm, I'm gonna end this in a, with a quote uh, and the quote is from a, a young man um, who is who is speaking uh, his name is uh, Brandon and Gazik and he speaks around 30 minutes into this clip and it's he was one of the people who tried to wreck this teepee two days ago on you know unceded territory uh, and was stopped by the RCMP. And this is important. Remember, this is land which was you know traditionally you know, uh, Algonquin, and it is it is unceded territory, and they are being stopped from erecting their own in, their own things there. Uh, and the quote is pretty simple. It's uh, we talk about truth and reconciliation, and no one wants to hear the truth. If we can't get past the truth, we will never get to reconciliation. And, and that's from the fact that these are the reactions of silence he was getting from the RCM protest, RCMP as he was trying to explain and ask them why they were rejecting this, this, this placement, which now at least remains up in, in an ongoing protest um, of, of, of more information again on the website. Mm-hmm. So uh, that is basically it for the show. We have a bonus show coming up if you're listening on the podcast on the podcast today. Hold. It'll be posted on Monday. Uh, but it is coming. Uh, more exciting content as well. And we have some more uh, interesting interviews coming up over the next few weeks. I won't tease them until they're solidified. But uh, we do have some guests coming back uh, shortly as well just to mix up the uh, the voices on the show. And of course, as Stefan said, he's going to be away for a couple of weeks here. So I'll have I'll be in studio with a couple of special guests soon. But that is all we have for this week. Thank you for listening to, for, uh, to and for the Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5. Have a good week.